day, I tell you. Way to go, Peter and Mark. Thank you, guys. Thank you so much. Great. So we're going to begin today with our teaching series on the Beatitudes. And it's really just a continuation on what our church has been studying for the last few months, which is about discipleship and evangelism. And if we want to know how to be followers of Jesus and we want to know how to disciple other people, we need to know what it is that Jesus taught. And so we're beginning a series today on one of his core teachings, which is the, uh, the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes. And so we're actually going to begin Gordy's sermon time by reading together out of uh, the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 5. So if you could go to the first slide, and we'll read this together, and then I'll pray for Gordy, and he'll begin. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of their righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And let's all together pray. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The gospel of Christ. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. So we are so privileged to be able to be somewhere where we're not persecuted for what we believe, that we can gather together today, and that we're not afraid for our lives, that we're not meeting in secret, that we have the doors open, and that we can sing as loud as we want. And, and so we're blessed today to worship, and we're blessed to have you, Gordy. We're blessed to have you as a teacher and a grandpa and a dad and an uncle and a friend and a brother and all the things that you are to us. So I just will pray for you as you begin this series. And we're so glad this is birthed out of your heart and what God's doing in you as you lead us as a congregation. So thank you for that. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Father, for Gordy. Thank you for your servant. Thank you for your son. Thank you, Lord, that... He has such a hunger and a thirst for you, and he so longs to see your kingdom come here in his life, in his home, with his neighbors, in this community, and with this church. He's just poured himself into us as a community for so many years. And Lord, he's really asking you some deep questions in this season. He's really crying out to you for more, and he's been so open and so honest with us as a community about what he wants and how he longs to see deep, lasting fruit that remains in this time and in this season that, that he wants uh, more for us. And so, Lord, we just ask today that as he leads us through asking these questions, as he leads us through this introduction and as he shares, us, shares with us this heart, his passion and what he has heard from you, Lord, as to what this next season is to be like and how we're to study, would you give him the words to say, would you give him a deep discernment even as he speaks? Would you clarify more for him what it is that you're calling 
for him to bring and do and be. But most of all, Lord, would you give him just such a deep uh, sense of who you are and how this is your work and how this is your work to be done and it's your zeal that will accomplish it and how you just long for us to come along with us and, and accompany us and be with us and and sit at your feet and listen to what you have to say. So, Lord, I just pray that you would give Gordy just uh, thank you for his listener's heart, and I just pray that you'd give him wisdom as he listens today to you and translates what he's hearing for us. And we just pray that you'd open our hearts and our ears, that you'd give us all we have to give today, and that would bind us together to, as a community and closer to you, Lord Jesus. Amen. Thanks, Joanna. No worries. Well, thank you, Joanna, for uh, emceeing this morning. We kind of threw you into the deep end, and uh, she did amazing. She did amazing. Fantastic. <laughs> Told her she's hired every week. So I want to begin our series this morning by, um, I, I'm kind of doing two things. I'm preaching a sermon, but I'm also introducing, introducing a series. Not working? Are we? Okay, something's happening, but all right. Um, I'm just going to style you here. Multi-talented. Oh yeah. Multitasker. Parenting. All right. Huh? Okay. Let's try again. I'm introducing a, a sermon and I'm introducing a series both today and, and, and um, it, sometimes that's a bit of a challenge for time restraints, but I think we're going to pull it off. Um, as many of you know, I've, Kathleen and I have lived in Vancouver now 21, this, as of September, 21 years within walking distance of this place that we're meeting this morning. We've moved a couple of times, but it's always been within walking distance. So this has become our hood. Our kids grew up here. Um, our first grandchild was born here, and I keep reminding him of that. Um, and uh, about two years after we arrived in, in Vancouver, uh, I discovered this little place, well, not even that long, but this place called Regent College. So for some reason, they let me in. Uh, I guess they saw enough scars on me that they said, you don't have a degree, but those scars will work, so you're in. So they gave me a mature student status, which I think they've wondered about that ever since. <laughs> but I've gotten in, and I'm, I'm coming near the end of my program. Uh, I'll be finishing and graduating uh, this May, and you will all be there, all right? And um, we are going to have a Vineyard Holy Ghost revival over at Broadway Church. And, uh, but... One of the things that happens as you get to the, near the end of the program, well, first when you start, you have a lot of options, a lot of classes, and it's been incredible. I've usually taken one course at a time. I'm trying to set the record for being the longest student ever there. Uh, I think it'll be about 20 years uh, when I'm done. And, uh, uh, you know, it, it's just one of those things that when you started, it just, there was just so much, you know, it was like a... a, 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 a a smorgasbord, you know, you just go and, and can take whatever you want, and, and it's always been wonderful and timely, but there's been courses I've been putting off, and uh, uh, it's just because they're, they're kind of more the, 
you know, the nuts and bolts courses that, that you have to take. They're, they're, they're required courses for your program. And, and the course that I have not been looking forward to the most is the one I'm in the middle of now. And it's, and it's, it's introduction to Greek and Hebrew. And I have been putting it off and putting it off and putting it off because so many of my friends who've come through this church and gone through region have told me horror stories about Greek and Hebrew. Unless, of course, you're Beth Stavell, who does Greek and Hebrew for a hobby. Uh, I don't understand that at all. But, um, but most people have just said, it. you know, you, basically you just don't have a life uh, during, during the class. But as I began to take the class this fall, I began to realize that I'm loving it. And I was surprised. And the reason why I'm enjoying it is, is I have discovered that I'm gaining tools that I wished I'd have had for many, many years. When I, when I used a lexicon, or when I used a concordance, or when I used uh, different study guides, uh, many times it assumes a working knowledge of Greek and Hebrew. And all of a sudden, these things are coming alive. Now, I've cheated and used Strong's numbering system to get words and all that, but all of a sudden, I'm able to look up a Greek word alphabetically and just and, and phonetically be able to pronounce it and and it's it's just uh, it's just a whole new world and so I went on the Regent website because I took a course early in my my Regent experience called biblical interpretation and I did okay but it I struggled it was a difficult course for me it was probably one of the most difficult courses in all the classes I took at Regent and I did okay but I was looking on the course web, or on, on the Regent website the other day in their catalog, and it says, note, for biblical interpretation, biblical exegesis interpretation requires some knowledge of both Hebrew and Greek. <laughs> I went, okay. So I noticed now that they've made it what they call a prerequisite. And I want to talk about the importance of prerequisites, because life is a bit like that. And, the, and, and our sermon today is basically about a fundamental prerequisite that Jesus sets out that, that if you don't have in place in your discipleship, you're going to struggle like I did in biblical interpretation. How many have ever heard the term thrown into the deep end? Yeah. <laughs> That's what we did to Joanna this morning. Uh, thrown into the deep end is where, you know, they, it's, it's a metaphor for when you're teaching somebody to swim and you throw them in the deep end and say, swim or drown. And it's not a good thing. My wife said it's not a good thing. So if she said it, it's not a good thing. Because if mama's happy, everybody's happy. No, well, it, it isn't a good thing. And that was exactly my point. And, and why isn't it a good thing? Yeah, people drown, but more, probably more likely, we won't let them drown. But it creates a fear and a phobia that this, there's, a, there's a barrier to doing this, that I can't do this. And Jesus understood that. And I think the church has sometimes missed that in understanding the importance of first things first. I had some guys, some friends one time, when I was a green run skier, who took me on the diamond black. <laughs> Come on, Gordy, you can do it. And guess what? I did the moguls. But I had an innovative way from the top of one mogul to the next on my butt. Boom, boom, boom. It was owie, um, as my grandchildren say. So before you learn to read, you need to learn the alphabet. Before you do algebra, you need to learn to count. This is the story of our lives. And this is, uh, Jesus gives us in this first, particularly in the first beatitude, blessed are the poor in spirit. He gives to us a fundamental prerequisite that if we don't have in place in our lives, 
we will struggle. Now, since we're talking about school metaphors, uh, I also want to talk about the, uh, the fact that the Beatitudes are, are, are a bit like a syllabus, which is what we're going to cover today. Now, a syllabus is a bit like a table of contents. You know, when you go to... Can you just move? Yeah, we got it. Um, a table of contents, when you go to read a book, I don't know about you, but I always look at the table of contents because I want to know where I'm going, and I, know what, I want to know what I'm getting into. And a syllabus is like that for a course. When, you, when I go to take a course at Regent, there's a syllabus that tells me the content that I'll be covering, the topics, as well as what's required of me. And that's a little bit of what the Beatitudes are like. Now, I, I came across that accidentally as a youth pastor. The first passage of Scripture I ever memorized as a teenager was the Sermon of the Mount. I, me- I memorized Matthew 5, 6, and 7 as a, as a 17-year-old kid. And, and it just, uh, Jesus just came alive, and I, I literally obeyed it. I didn't know that you weren't supposed to be literal about the way you obey. I didn't know you weren't supposed to turn the other cheek, that you weren't supposed to really love your enemy, that you weren't supposed to, re- that, like, that's, that's enabling bullies and stuff like that. I didn't know that. I just did it. And it worked for me. It worked. <laughs> And, and I followed Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. And when I became a youth pastor, I wanted to, I wanted to develop a locally church-based discipleship school. And so I looked at the Sermon on the Mount, and all, all, all of a sudden one day, the, the idea dropped in my head. The, ser- the Beatitudes are like the syllabus. So I developed a discipleship school around the, the syllabus of the Beatitudes. And I found out this week that St. Augustine believed the same thing. Wow. He's been listening to my podcasts. <laughs> huh? Pretty good, eh? Anyway, I think they are a bit of a, a syllabus. They give us, in fact, some scholars believe, some scholars believe, for those of you that are here for the first time, welcome to VEV. Some scholars, there we go. The issue is that it keeps, it touches your throat when you bend down to look at your notes. So I'm just going to move it. Away. See, I'm just so anointed that so, Mike cannot handle the anointing. It's true. I know. So, so if you could imagine, thanks Joanna, if you could imagine the Beatitudes being like the table of contents for the Sermon on the Mount, and then uh, the Sermon on the Mount uh, kind of expanding on the Beatitudes, and the Sermon on the Mount, as one scholar said, is like taking the entire teachings of Jesus wrapping it up and putting it in your pocket. It's like the pocket-sized teachings of all that Jesus taught and did in, in, uh, in one little package. And, and in fact, some scholars believe that Matthew had an agenda to present Jesus as the new Moses who was giving a new Torah. The Gospel of Matthew... Now, how many books are in the Torah? Five. And, and so, yeah, hint, right? And in Matthew, it's organized so that you have five different sections that are comprised of a uh, compilation of stories and then extended teaching. So if you go through Matthew, you'll see this. A bunch of stories, like we just had in Matthew 4 then the Sermon on the Mount, then some more stories, and then his instructions when he sent the disciples out on a mission, then some more stories, and then the parables, and some more stories, and then uh, some more parables, 
about forgiveness and children and stuff like that. And then finally, some more stories. And then the end of time. Remember all those parables about the, the five foolish virgins and, and the, you know, the talents. So Matthew's organized like that. So a lot of people see Matthew presenting Jesus as the new Moses who didn't come to do away with the law as he, did, as he says in the Sermon on the Mount. Matt, uh, Mark, uh, Alec will be teaching on that in a couple of weeks. But he came to fulfill the law. Jesus, uh, but he came to interpret the law that had been badly misinterpreted by the teachers of the law and through time and through tradition. And so the Torah, uh, it, the, the equivalent to the Sermon on the Mount is Mount Sinai. Jesus was on the Mount giving his teachings. Mount Sinai was Moses giving the Ten Commandments and the, and the Torah. And then you have the Ten Commandments or the Decalogue, which is a fancy way of saying the Ten Commandments. So, um, interesting, you don't need to do that to get, to, you don't need to know this to get to heaven, but it will help you uh, get a little bit of uh, orientation to, to the teachings of Jesus. So let's look at this first beatitude, the prerequisite for uh, entering the kingdom of heaven is, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The word blessed, as many of you know, is happy to be envied. The lucky ones are the poor in spirit. And because I've been taking Greek this week, I'm happy to tell you that the Greek word for poor is patakos. Patakos. And uh, it means, first of all, uh, the, the seeming opposite in our society. Remember, we're talking about an alternative society. It seems to be the opposite of what would be regarded as lucky in our society. Because the first meaning of the word poor here is those who are destitute, who have to beg for a living, who have to live on the good graces of others' generosity in order to even survive. Doesn't sound like the lucky ones in our culture, right? But there's an even a larger meaning. It means to be reduced of anything that would gain you uh, respect in society, like uh, learning position, title, uh, an educational degree, wearing van shoes, uh, fashion, uh, not having a PhD, no masters, no bachelors, no graduation from high school, and even if you said, ah, you know, high school sucks, I'm just going to go out and do business, and you went bankrupt. It's that kind of a, you know, uh, deprived person. So blessed are the destitute, blessed are the deprived, and then even, if you, if you think we haven't gone far enough, blessed are the depraved. In, in other words, not only don't you have any money and not, any, not any, any status, but you don't have any moral virtues, no goodness or righteousness. So the question is, why in the world would Jesus say this? No, no righteousness? Blessed are those that have no righteousness? Blessed are those who have no money. Blessed are those who have no status. What does he mean? Well, he qualifies it by saying, in spirit. There's, there's an important qualification. Now, let me say, first of all, that you can take those words literally if you understand that Jesus is announcing that no matter how disqualified you think you are, the kingdom is available to you. However, it requires poverty of spirit. So we want to talk about that qualifier. That's an important one. 
Now, it is true that if you are physically poor, that if you have had a bankruptcy and you've had a devastation, how many know sometimes it makes people more open to the kingdom and to being poor in spirit? But not necessarily. I've met some really poor people that are still full of themselves. Right? So it's not a necessary. It just sometimes helps when you know that you are in need. So what does the qualifier mean? Well, the word spirit, Greek, there we go, the word pneuma, is the inner person. So Jesus is talking about an inner disposition of spirit. So what does it mean to be poor, destitute, depraved in, this, in your spirit? What's he talking about? Well, I think we see examples of this all through the Gospels. I love it when Matthew says that a leper who's coming down the road ringing his bell to let everybody know, don't touch me, I'm unclean. And, and Matthew says he came to Jesus and he says, Lord Jesus, if you're willing, you can make me clean. And it says Jesus moved with compassion. He said, I am willing. That's off the table. Be clean. I love it when, oh, Zacchaeus or the, the blind man. Remember Bartimaeus and his buddy? They say, what's the ruckus? Oh, Jesus is passing by. Who? Jesus, the healer, the Messiah. Hey! Lord Jesus. Somebody said, shut up. He said, no, I'm a Pentecostal. Hey, Lord Jesus, Son of God. Have mercy on me. I mean, they just went wild. And, it, and I love it because it says when they told him to shut up, they shouted all the louder. I'll tell you, my Pentecostal background just kicks right in with that. I go, yes! Right? Okay, I'll tone down in a minute. Just relax. You, some of you Baptists, you need prayer. And so, so the cry was, have mercy. And then Jesus tells the story about two guys that went up to the temple. One guy was a Pharisee and one was a tax collector. And says the Pharisee stood apart from the tax collector. And he says, oh, Lord. I don't know if he had this accent. But he said, I thank you that I'm not like other people. Like this tax collector over here, for example. Because I pray. I read my Bible. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all I got. But the tax collector stood at a distance and he could, could not even look up. And he beat his chest and he said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus finishes it by saying, this man went out justified rather than the other. For all those who humble themselves will be exalted, but those who exalt themselves will be humbled. Poverty of spirit is like the newborn baby's cry when you come into the kingdom of God. And the cry is this. I have no claim to anything good. I have no claim to any hope except the mercy of God. It is the laying down of all sense of entitlement. And my only hope is, Lord, have mercy on me. And it's God's mercy and grace by which we stand. Now, being poor in spirit is, how do we get there? And is, do, we, do, we, do we encounter that and then 
move on? And my belief is, is that is a fundamental, just like you never stop using your alphabet, do you? You never stop using those. I believe this disposition is something that has to be a part of our life. And many Christians start having trouble swimming and have start trouble walking because they, they forget that or they missed it. They never got that prerequisite to being a disciple. My own reason for any kind of hope is the mercy of God. The Pharisee was full of himself. I tithe. Is there anything wrong with that? No, there's nothing wrong with tithing, fasting. Those are biblical disciplines. We're going to be hearing about it in the Sermon on the Mount. But that had become his hope. That had become his justification, his identity, rather than the mercy of God. And you see, I don't care if I'm 95 years old, have been serving God for 50 years, have lived faithfully to my dying breath. It is my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. And the moment you get away from that, I don't care how much you pray or how spiritual you think you are, you start becoming self-righteous, a Pharisee, a religious person that starts misrepresenting who God is. Scary stuff, right? And it does sneak up at you and bite you in the, you know what, doesn't it? All the time. Yeah. So, how do we cultivate this? Well, the sages and the mystics and the prophets and the teachers and the church fathers and mothers through history have told us that it's important to, that, that being poor in spirit is the gift and art of cultivating self-awareness. Self-awareness is the, the, an intellectual insight into the human condition, yours and humanity. It's it's being aware of, uh, it's, it's as Aristotle said, know yourself. The Greeks had an intuition before even the New Testament came along that there was a direct correlation between knowing yourself and knowing God. And the Hebrew prophets and poets called for this. The psalmist said, Lord, teach me to number my days. Help me to know how frail I am. God spoke to Isaiah and said, cry out. And Isaiah said, give me something profound to cry out. And, and God said, cry out, all flesh is as grass. Humanity, know your frailty. Lynn and I were talking about this this morning, you know, with, with her about in the hospital, how, how she's been gripped by her, her frailty, her limitations. And to be aware of those things. And, and you know what, it's... As you get older, you, st you can get frustrated, but it's one of the, the greatest gifts of, of aging for me as I've become more acutely aware of my limits. When I was a 20-year-old youth pastor, I was Superman. I could do anything. Bless God. And let me say, bless God, duh, with two syllables. So... So how do we do this? How do we, uh, how do we cultivate this? Well, uh, we have a problem. And the problem is, according to Jeremiah, it's our hearts. We are pathological liars. And we lie, most of all, to ourselves. Exactly. 
That is the problem with being poor in spirit. That is the problem with cultivating self-awareness is we constantly have to deal with this pathological liar. And so, Jeremiah went on to say, I, the Lord, search the heart and examine the mind to reward everyone according to their conduct and according to what their deeds. So, so there's, there's this desire to be poor in spirit is challenged by the liar in you and me. I'm, I'm in this with you. And we teachers can be the worst because we live that this is our role, you know, and there's a whole story behind that. But, but this pathological liar in me has an ally called the father of lies. So the father of lies and, the, and, the, and, the, and the, the lying heart in me get together and self-deceive. So how do we, how do we counteract that? Well, I have a hero. I've already mentioned him this morning. His name is Augustine. I uh, did a project on him a couple of years ago. And Augustine, St. Augustine lived around 3400 A.D. He was, he was an uh, African Christian, came to Christ after a long journey through sexual addiction. And he wrote a book called Augustine's Confession where he's very open, remarkably open for his day. I mean, this kind of literature didn't happen back then where someone would so self-disclose like he did. He, he was just a man ahead of his time. And he battled this sexual addiction and, and he was very versed in Greek uh, philosophers and he, he recognized that in order to be self-aware, he needed to cultivate the art of self-examination. And he learned that both from the Greek classics as well as the New Testament. Socrates said that the unexamined life is not worth living. And then as he became to Christ, he began to understand that the central meal, the central, sorry, central worship event of the Christian faith, the meal, is an act of self-examination. Let a, let a person examine themselves, Paul. So Augustine understood this, and I believe we can learn from him. There's four ways that he practiced self-examination that I think we can learn from. The first is prayerful humility. Augustine recognized that he could not know himself without God's heart, God's eyes, without God's perspective. If you try to self-examine without God, you're going to do either delusions of grandeur or you're going to kill yourself. Seriously. Like, like there, we are so lying to ourselves. We'll either lie negatively or lie in the positive. We'll, we'll, we, we need God's help. We need his perspective. We need him to show us how much we need him, how... how, how, how we're, we're addicted to our fears and our anxieties and our pride and our insecurities, but that he loves us incredibly at the same time, right? So that's why the psalmist said, search me, O God, and know my heart. The, the, the psalmist invited the Holy Spirit to come in, a, in an act of, of self-examination. He, he was saying, God, I cannot do this myself. I cannot examine myself on my own. And I love what the psalmist says. Listen to this. He says, search me and lead me in the way... Uh, or Sorry, uh, let me start again. Search me, O God. Know my heart, right? So the psalmist, self-examination has to be a partnership with God. And, and, and then he goes on to say, uh, know my heart, test me, and know my anxious thoughts. Now, when I was growing up, that was always interpreted, know my wicked thoughts. Why does it say anxious thoughts? 
was because the psalmist had an insight that our own anxieties are probably the, the root of most of the evil we end up in. It's anxiety. It's not trusting God. Isn't that where it started in the garden? Right? So to be poor in spirit is to be constantly aware of the heart's tendency to self-deceive. And, and so a person who is poor in spirit, a person who is examining themselves, uh, will actually uh, be, be open to, to correction and, and, and keen to hear correction and rebuke as a gift from God. The psalmist said, let a righteous person strike me. It is kindness. It is a kindness to be rebuked a person who is poor in spirit says, rebuke is a gift to me because of my own heart's ability to deceive me. My own heart's ability to lie to me. A few years ago, one of my colleagues, and this is long enough ago that most of you will not even know the era, about 17 years ago, a colleague pulled me aside and, and uh, she confronted me because I kept going over my time restraints when I preached. <laughs> And, um, and she told me that the concern was not so much the length of time. She said the concern was the credibility that I was losing. If I said that I was going to be this long and I was longer, and that happened a lot, there was, there was a credibility loss. And so I, I received it, and I said, thank you for caring. And I need to, I need to tell you, she was kind, she was respectful, she, she, she worded right. But then at the end, she asked me, are you Okay. So I said, yeah, I'm fine. And I smiled, you know, the Canadian Christian smile. And then I said, you know what? No, I'm not. Because the only time that you take the time to pull me aside and tell me something, it's a negative, right? You haven't, I haven't heard you affirm uh, anything good, you see. And, and immediately she repented to me for that. And she apologized. And I apologized. And, well, for the longest time, for years... Years following, I would tell that story. And you know what my perspective was? Find somebody, find, uh, catch people doing something right. Don't just pick the negative. Until a couple years ago, the Lord really grabbed me by the scruff of the neck. And he said, did you really listen to what? And, and, I, and I realized at that moment that I had self-deceived. That just, a, a, just by my little righteous cause of of, 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 of almost casting blame back. And we do that, don't we? Somebody will come after us and immediately we'll, we'll, we'll project back to them instead of saying, God, search me. Deal with my heart. And poverty of spirit says, I want to hear. Let a righteous person strike me. It is a kindness to me. It is oil on my head. The second thing that Augustine taught us about self-awareness is the scriptures, the role of scriptures. Augustine uh, recognized what the Psalms saw, that the scriptures were like a mirror. In fact, James writes that the scriptures are like a mirror. Not only do they help us see ourselves, but they provide what Augustine called the language of self-awareness, the language of humility, the language of confession, the language of repentance. You know, we, we're a generation of entitlement and we've lost the language of humility. We've lost the language of repentance. We've lost the language, you know, of saying, well, you know, I, I really hurt you. Will you forgive me and pray for me? Because we're so full of ourselves. Listen to what Augustine said. 
he was, he was versed in the Greek classics, and at first he was really offended by the Bible. Has that ever happened to you? He was offended by it. But then he wrote this as he came out of his sexual addiction, as he began to experience freedom, he said this, We have not come across any other books, he's talking about the Bible now, so destructive of pride, so destructive of the enemy and the defender who resists your reconciliation by defending his sins. Did you get that? i got to say that again. Listen to this. We have not come across any book so destructive of pride, so destructive of the enemy, and the defender who resists your reconciliation. Who's the defender who resists your reconciliation? Who's that defender? Close. <laughs> your lying heart. <laughs> right? Your cheating heart. No, no. Your lying heart. <laughs> right? That's what he's going after. He's saying the Bible, he says there is no more, anything more destructive of that self-deceiving heart than the scriptures. As you keep giving yourself to them. He said, Lord, I've not known another utterance so pure, which so persuasively moved me to confession. They make my head, my neck bow to your yoke and bring me to offer a free worship. May I understand them, good Father, as I submit to you. Grant this to me, since for those who submit to you have firmly established the Scripture's authority. Folks, we're too biblically illiterate. Sorry. If we're going to be disciples of Jesus, may I present to you that if you're a follower of Jesus, if you're a disciple, you will pursue him in the Scriptures. Too many of us think Joan of Arc was Noah's wife, that the Acts of the Apostles was Samson, who killed, how Samson killed the Philistines, that the Epistles were wives of the Apostles, and that Solomon had 300 wives and 700 porcupines. Right? <laughs> We need to get in the scriptures, don't we? All right, thirdly, community. The third key, and this is why I, you know, this is not my idea, this thing about small groups. And by the way, they're time-bound, two months. That's what we're saying. Two months, then we'll stop, we'll debrief, we'll, we'll look at next, next term, next year. But get in these small groups because we run from community because of our lack of poverty of spirit. We run away because we're afraid of what we're going to see. We all need this 360-degree vision. And right now, I only see 180, right? You see what I don't see. And that's why we need each other for 360-degree vision in our lives. And to not be in community, you know what happens to me? What I notice when I'm isolated from you and from, from my family and, uh, and my friends, those, that distortion of either, either I go into despair, I default either to despair or delusions of grandeur. We are all psychotic <laughs> without community, right? Did you like that? Think I'd make a good actor in a horror movie? Okay. So we all need somebody in our life who can tell us anything, that will call us on our stuff, uh, that, that calls us on our BS. We need people like that. We need people that we can go to when we need to confess our sins. And I believe that the Spirit of God is calling us to that in this season, a greater level of that. And then finally, and this is connected to the others, confession. And, and Augustine wrote his book, Confessions, Augustine's Confessions. James wrote, if we confess our sins to each other and pray for each other, and the reason why confession is so important is because when, when I confess to God, there's, there's value in that. But when I confess to a sister or a brother, there is a perspective. And I'm talking about earned trust. 
it's, it's, I'm talking about, you know, you develop that. You don't just come up to somebody and dump all your garbage the first day. You, you know, there's relational skills in that. But I'm talking about what we're moving towards as a community where you have a safe place to, to talk about your stuff with. Do you have somebody that knows everything about you? Right? And, and community helps us with that. Now, I've been going 35 minutes, and I got started a little bit late, so you gotta, you got to give me a little bit of grace, okay? I'm going to take five more minutes, and I'll be done. There's a progression here. The, the uh, Beatitudes are like the doorway to all of the other, Beati- all the other Beatitudes. Because when you know who you are, you cry out to God. This week, I've cried out to God about me. He's showing me stuff about myself. You know, does it show you how absolutely evil we are that the people we hurt the most are the people we love the most? I am such ass sometimes. Right? So, and you, you, you mourn your heart as, as God shows you. And not only your heart, but I, I mourn the condition of the church, the lack of zeal and passion. And I, lack the, I, I mourn the lack of justice in our culture and the world and the, the oppression of women and children. And, you know, if we, don't, if we don't mourn that, we're not self-aware. We're not aware. We're not poor spirit. So poverty spirit leads to mourning. And it leads to hunger and thirst. We cry out, oh God, There's a hunger in our church crying out, Oh God, bring your justice. Bring your righteousness. Change me, Lord. Change me on the inside. That song we sing. Blessed are the meek or the gentle. How many know when you realize how much you've had to be forgiven of, it makes you gentle and patient with others and merciful as well? People that don't show mercy haven't seen the mercy that they've been shown and, and then the others. And I, I don't have time to develop this, but as we go through the Sermon on the Mount, I've asked each of the teachers to think about this grid. Think about what part their sermon is reflected here. Because uh, it's there. It's, it's actually quite remarkable. And so then Jesus kind of gives the finale to the sermon, where he, or to the Beatitudes, when he says, Blessed are you when people insult you persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. I remember memorizing this as a high schooler going into grade 12 and I saying, yes, Lord, persecution, bring it on. And, and rejoice and be glad because great is your reward. I want to get what Isaiah got and Jeremiah. And if you just, if you just, if somebody does something because you, you did something for Christ, they say something about you and put you down. God says you're in the same category as Ezekiel. Isn't that amazing? Well, I think it's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> and I thought that as a, 12, as a grade 12, and I walked in, and I said, bring it on, persecution. And they didn't persecute. I was bold. I preached to my grad. They all clapped. Yeah, and I'm so disappointed. Yeah. <laughs> oh, well. So, so for practice, two things. Number one, your homework, find a small group. If you come tonight... You'll, you'll get, you know, my, my teacher in, in Regent says, this is your assignment, I'm going to do a tutorial. And you, when you go to tutorial, you get a head start because you've got the teacher helping you. Tonight there's a tutorial. We're going to have a workshop here and right here, right here. Yeah, might even be a treat, but I'm not going to bribe you. No. Um, and secondly, 
uh, I, I, I felt like the Lord in uh, give, give us an exercise in, in self-awareness, and it was this. To take some time and reflect on this question. What am I anxious about? What do I worry about? Because the psalmist said that, that is a root that goes way down. And it's amazing how much in the Sermon on the Mount Jesus is going to talk about anxiety and worry. Because anxiety and worry points out, um, can I say it nicely? Idols. Other gods that we put before him. And we're not trusting him, we're trusting those gods. Right? So, Ask the Lord what gods you're tending to put your, your faith in. I, it's not a condemnation. We all battle it. I'm, as I'm, I, I hit 55 this year, and I went through this crisis when I went to this hotel. Uh, we had a crisis where we had to take a hotel one night, and they offered me the seniors rate. Freaked me right out. I didn't mind saving the money, but boy, that... Oh, it was better than the BCAA rate. Unbelievable. So, and so you start thinking about these things. I, I talked to our, our leadership team. I said, you know what? We need to plan for my departure. They said, where are you going? I said, to heaven. You know? <laughs> I didn't quite say it like that. But, yeah. but, but we got to think about these things, right? And, and so I start getting anxious. I start thinking, well, what, what am I going to do? Because one of the things we talked about is, we want to identify a couple or a leader, a man or a woman, who is going to succeed us uh, in our church as pastors. And I don't know how long. This pastor coming from Boise Vineyard, it took seven years. I don't know. I don't think it'll take that long here. But that doesn't mean we'll leave necessarily. I'd love to stay and just be part of the community. But I, I can't do it forever, right? So you got to think about these things. But, it, but I get worried. I start worrying about stuff like that. But God says, well, who are you trusting? Who, who are you putting your faith in? So write out or draw a prayer of a confession and invite the reign of God to come. And then, and then I encourage you sometime today or this week to, to pray with somebody about your anxieties. You know? And it hits you when a father in your faith, you know, all of a sudden you see their mortality. You know, and you, you know, I mean, my dad's been a rock in my life, and I, I can't imagine what's going to happen to me. When, I mean, he's 80, and he's still stronger than me, but I know it's not going to be forever. But we all, we all get challenged on those things. You pray for one another, because what happens when you, you know what happens when you pray? Dietrich Bonhoeffer says that when you pray for one another, it magnifies the encouragement ten times than if you tried to get the encouragement yourself from God. The power of a brother or sister encouraging you magnifies ten times. Alright? So I did 40 minutes. Is that okay? Alright. Let's stand. Let's pray. Let's stand. Let's pray. Just open your hearts up. Our time is up. I know we need to get our kids and want to be considered of all that, but just want to pray, pray over us, invite the Holy Spirit to come. If you are here and you need prayer, if, if the Lord has just touched on something this morning that you'd like for the ministry, please, by all means, come. 
Uh, I'd love to pray for you. There's other people here who would love to pray for you. Uh, Or just, uh, as we say, turn to a trusted friend that's with you and and get them to pray for you. Um, We believe that the word of God, the kingdom of God is not word only. It's power. And his power is here. So Holy Spirit, we invite you to come right now. And Lord, would you just wash away would you just wash away the fears, the, the clutter, the anxieties, Lord, that are just keeping us from seeing you? Would you search our hearts today, Lord? Would you shine the, the spotlight of your, your spirit on us, Lord? And teach us, Lord, the, the art of cultivating self-awareness. Lord, the, the step that the 12 steps discovered, Lord, just being poverty of spirit, recognizing my life is out of control. I need help. And that's not just when I come into the kingdom, it's for the rest of my days. And your promise is, blessed are you who are poor in spirit, who recognize your need and dependency on the ongoing mercy and the grace of God. Because yours is the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is yours. No limitations. Come, Lord. Come, Father. Wash over us fresh today. In Jesus' name. So may the grace of the Lord Jesus and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Love one another.